Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today I'm coming at you with another Bar Cart Foundations episode. These are the episodes where I set aside time to talk about one very specific aspect of cocktails or home bartending and really get into the nitty gritty details that will help you get the most bang for your buck when you're experimenting or entertaining in your home. Today's topic is how to read the label on any spirit bottle and know what all those numbers, terms, and designations actually mean. How do you calculate proof versus ABV? What's the difference between a VS brandy and a VSOP brandy? How do you know if your distiller is making their spirit from grain to glass or just bottling somebody else's juice? These are all things we'll talk about in this episode, but for now, I want to give you the chance to make yourself a drink. For today's featured cocktail, we're going to use a set of spirits and mixers that kind of exemplifies some of the terms we'll discuss later in the episode so that you can make the connection between words on a label and actual in-glass cocktail applications of those terms, essentially why they matter. Cocktail in question is the sidecar, which is a lovely combination of brandy or cognac, orange liqueur, and lemon juice. You're going to want to start off with one and a half to two ounces of a VS brandy or cognac, which is great for mixing cocktails. You'll learn more about what VS means later in the episode. To that, you're going to add one ounce of orange liqueur, usually Cointreau, and then three quarters of an ounce to one ounce of lemon juice, depending on how tangy you like it. You're going to shake that all up with ice and strain it into a coupe glass garnish it with a nice orange twist. Personally, I like to swap out Grand Marnier for Cointreau when I make my sidecars. And the reason is that because Grand Marnier is an orange liqueur that is aged in oak, which gives it a more nuanced flavor profile. And again, we're going to go more into detail about aging later in this episode as well. So keep the sidecar in mind as we talk about some of these nuances later on. Now that you've got your drink, I think it's time to jump in and start talking about how to decode the terms and measurements on your favorite liquor labels. The most crucial terms for you to know are those that describe the physical characteristics of the liquid in the bottle. Essentially, what type of spirit and how much of it there is, which is exactly where we'll start with liquor bottle sizes. Before you even begin to read the label, it helps to know what size bottle you're dealing with, which is also incidentally going to help you to determine if there are benefits to buying a larger or smaller size in whatever situation you happen to be in. So the largest liquor bottles are called handles, and they hold 750 mLs of liquid, which is 1.75 liters, and that is just shy of half a gallon. In fact, I was actually at the liquor store the other day, and I heard one of the old-timers there actually refer to it as a half-gallon. So, there you go. Occasionally, one step down from that, you'll encounter spirits, vermouths, or liqueurs that come in one-liter bottles. A noteworthy example here is Carpano Antica Vermouth, 
and Suze, which is a bitter gentian liqueur. But most often, the next size in line after a half gallon is something called a fifth, which is 750 milliliters. That amounts to about 25 ounces of spirits if you're using the standard measurement system. And so in the world of cocktails, you can measure that out to roughly 12 two-ounce pours. I know I've mentioned it before on this podcast, but I think this is a great time to remind you that a standard 25-ounce bottle of spirits is a great number to have in your head when you need to batch cocktails. Because as long as you know the number of servings you need, you can always do some quick mental math and at least know how many bottles you'll need to pick up at the liquor store. Obviously, syrups and citrus get a bit more complicated, a little bit less precise in some cases, but you'll have your spirits squared away, and that's a great start when you're about to throw a party and start batching cocktails. Next up, we've got our 375 ml bottles, and these are most commonly vermouths and liqueurs. Occasionally, you're going to see a small version of a distilled spirit as well, but again, mostly mixers here. And... The 375 ml bottle is called a pint. It's a great size to have with you if you're looking to travel light or conversely, if you don't want to commit to something larger without testing it first. Obviously, 375 mls of a spirit or mixer is going to be a little bit less expensive, so uh, very good for people who are looking for variety or just looking to experiment. Next up, we've got our half pints, which are 200 ml. So if you're doing the math along with me here, it's not truly half the size of our 375 ml pint. Regardless, half pints are often kept behind the counter at most liquor stores because they are a prime target for shoplifters. They're really easy to slip into a pocket and just kind of walk out with. Finally, at the very bottom of the size totem pole, we've got those little 50 ml mini bottles, which are just shy of two ounces, and these are referred to as nips in certain parts of the country. They're great for gifts or if you need to be hyper-mobile with your cocktail setup, but these, again, aren't the most cocktail-friendly bottles either because they're just a little bit hard to mix with. So, once you've zeroed in on the size of the bottle you want, the next step is to identify what's actually in it. Most regulatory standards, foreign and domestic, require spirits producers to declare the contents of the bottle pretty openly on the label. In this regard, spirits are a bit easier to deal with than wine, which tends to heavily emphasize the producer and the grape varietal, but doesn't always state Cabernet or Merlot or Syrah in many instances unless you know exactly where to look. So, long story short, spirits are a bit easier to work with than wines. You have to do a little bit less book studying before you actually go to the liquor store. But one trick to use if you run into a particularly difficult spirit bottle is to look at the bottles to the left and right of it on the shelf and see if you spot a trend. If that doesn't work, then look for small print on the bottom of the front label or maybe somewhere on the back label to identify what you're actually working with. They've got to state it somewhere uh, or else it's really not allowed to be sold here in the U.S. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that most adults who are allowed to go into a liquor store are going to be able to navigate themselves to the correct aisle or shelf that holds the spirit they're looking for. But if you are having trouble, of course, just ask somebody who works there. And at this point, instead of going over the characteristics of every spirit, I'm going to kind of chunk them into various groups 
from easiest to hardest in terms of how difficult it is to identify them at first glance. And we'll talk about some of the characteristics of these spirits as we go here. Starting with the easiest labels to identify, we've got American whiskeys, gins of all sorts, and most vodkas. American whiskey is almost always going to specify whether it's a bourbon or a rye. Gin is, again, almost always going to designate a specific style that gives you hints about its flavor characteristics, such as a London Dry Gin, an Old Tom, a Hollands, and other styles. And vodka will almost always say something about the base grain used to distill its neutral spirit, which is one of a very few things that sets vodkas apart from one another, besides filtration. Honestly, I can't think of a time when I've had trouble identifying these spirits immediately, so we're not going to focus too, too much on them in this episode. Next in line, we've got rums, scotch, and Irish whiskeys, and brandies, both fruit-based and grape-based. Rums are pretty easy to tell apart using the color of the liquid. A white rum versus a gold rum versus an aged rum won't be difficult to distinguish, although telling apart a dark rum versus an aged rum might require a more detailed consultation of the label. One of the important things to know about rums is that they're largely divided into a British style and a French style, which I'm not going to go into much here, but if you see the word agricole on your rum bottle, A-G-R-I-C-O-L-E, it's a French style. Moving on to Scotch and Irish whiskey, these spirits tend to focus mostly on the age and the region or distillery where it was produced. So again, you might need to read the full label to determine exactly what you're working with, but the good news is that both of those countries are English-speaking countries, so for us here in the U.S., at least they're going to be speaking our language. Brandies are a little trickier still. You've got regular grape brandy, much of which is produced in France, where they grow a ton of grapes. And if you know anything about wine, you know the French really like to draw very strict geographical boundaries around their production regions, such that sparkling wine made on one side of an imaginary line can be called champagne, but sparkling wine produced just across the street might not be able to make that same label claim. Well, they do that with brandy as well. And the two regions of grape-based brandy that are important for uh, you to know are cognac, which is the most common, and then armagnac, which is similar but somewhat less common. Then we've got the fruit brandies, most commonly apple-based. American apple brandy can be referred to as applejack, and French apple brandy is called calvados. The last thing we need to cover with brandies is the way you understand the quality of what's in the bottle. But we're going to hold off and cover that later when we talk about understanding the age of certain spirits. Getting complicated? Well, we've still got a few to go here. One degree of difficulty deeper, we encounter agave-based spirits like tequila and mezcal, liqueurs and amari, Asian spirits, and eau de vie. The agave spirits differ primarily based on where and how they're produced. By law, tequila can only be made using blue agave, and there are certain geographical boundaries it must adhere to. Mezcal, on the other hand, is made using a slightly different process that involves smoking, and it's way more flexible in terms of the varieties of agave-like plants that can be used. Both tequila and mezcal, appropriately, tend to have Mexican or Spanish names and playful label art, which can 
both be barriers to identifying the spirit. So you may need to do a bit of reading to figure out if you're dealing with tequila or mezcal. And again, we'll talk about how to understand the age or quality of your agave spirits a little bit later in the episode. Moving on to liqueurs and amari, there are a couple factors at play that can make reading the label a bit difficult. First off, until recently, most of these producers, based largely in Europe, didn't care about the American market at all. During most of the 20th century, their products didn't match our mac and cheeseified cultural palate, and we Americans were pretty much too caught up in our own national delicacies like Budweiser to care about their bitter, floral, and herbaceous products. Now, obviously times have changed, but most liqueur and Amaro producers still haven't anglicized their labels all that much. So when you're going to the store to buy a liqueur, it's really, really helps to know exactly what you want because you're rarely going to find a place that'll let you taste test the entire shelf to figure it out. And you could be there for a long time pouring over labels and researching stuff on your smartphone before you get a good feel for the selection. So show up prepared if you're going to pick up a liqueur or an Amaro. Asian spirits like Arak and Shochu are another tricky case. Most Americans can stumble through a bit of Spanish or maybe some French or Italian on a label, but very few of us can read Chinese or Arabic script. So if you're at a liquor store that has a decent selection of Asian spirits, it might be well worth your time to get assistance from an employee right from the get-go. Otherwise, you might end up going home with something totally unexpected or of a different quality than you intended. Finally, we've got eau de vie, French for water of life, which is a generic term for unaged fruit-based spirits made in the style of vodka, but possessing very different flavor qualities. Here, I'm referring to things with such foreign names as aguardiente from Portugal, singani from Bolivia, aquavit from Scandinavia, and grappa from the Mediterranean basin, just to name a few. These spirits sit on the opposite end of the spectrum from their expensive, carefully aged, and blended counterparts. So instead of more information about where they're made and how they're created, you tend to get less clues on the label. Eau de vie are really fun to experiment with and compare across cultures and base fruits, but they're definitely still more obscure than most spirits you'll be using for your home bartending experiment, at least initially. Another important consideration when you're deciding which spirits to purchase is the amount of alcohol present in the solution. Now, there are two main ways that information is communicated on a label, either using proof or ABV, which stands for alcohol by volume. The use of the word proof goes back to the 16th century where the strength of alcohol was measured by soaking gunpowder in the spirit and then seeing if it would burn. In order for this to happen, chemically speaking, the spirit needed to be at least 57% alcohol. And so if the gunpowder ignited, it was deemed foolproof that the alcohol was strong enough. In today's units, 50% alcohol equates to 100 proof. So you're working with basically a 2 to 1 ratio of proof to ABV. For example... A bottle of whiskey that is 90 proof is 45% alcohol by volume, so you're just dividing the proof in half to get the ABV. And conversely, a bottle that's 55% alcohol is 110 proof. So to go from ABV to proof, you just multiply by two. 
At this point, you know how to identify what size bottle you've got in your hand, as well as what kind of spirits in the bottle and how much alcohol it contains. Now I'm going to cover some of the clues the label can provide about how this particular spirit was sourced and distilled. As we know from past episodes, all spirits are basically beer that's run through a device called a still, which takes a low alcohol input and generates a high octane spirit on the back end. The flavor profiles of most spirits are highly dependent upon the fruit or grain used to create the mash, which is that initial fermented combination of water, grain or fruit, and yeast. Uh, It was a very basic overview of a very complex process, but stick with me here. There are a couple different reasons why a spirit label might contain information about the mash bill, which is the industry term for the various proportions of grains used to distill a spirit. The most common reason is that certain spirits, by law, must contain a certain proportion of certain grains. For example, whiskey that wants to call itself bourbon must be distilled from at least 51% corn to meet regulatory requirements. Another great example of this is scotch whiskey. If a scotch distiller wants to call his or her product a single malt scotch, then it can only be made using malted barley without the addition of any other grains. Otherwise, it falls into a different category, most often blended scotch whiskey, rather than single malt. Another reason why you might find information about the mash bill on the bottle is because the distiller might feel that their unique ratio of base grains or perhaps the origin of those ingredients, communicates something to the consumer. Let's do an example of this. A bourbon distilled using a healthy amount of wheat, in addition to the required 51% corn, is going to have a much lighter flavor profile, for example, than a bourbon made using a heavy dose of rye. So if the producer wants to communicate that to savvy consumers, they're going to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for you on the label by communicating something about that mash bill. They might call it a weeded bourbon, for example, or a high rye bourbon. And that's gonna tell you something about the flavor profile. In terms of ingredient sourcing, many craft distillers have a dedication to sourcing their grains locally, either to support local farmers or because their particular spirits have a long tradition rooted in a certain locale. Maryland rye is a perfect example of this. It's a state with a rich distilling tradition and many distillers there make sure to source their rye from Maryland farmers in order to communicate and reinforce that tradition to their consumers. They think that adds value to their local consumers because it kind of helps them get in touch with that tradition. Now we get to a really contentious topic, which is age statements on spirit labels. First off, what does it mean when a spirit is aged? Well, it means that spirit was taken out of the still and then placed in a barrel of some sort and allowed to rest for a certain amount of time in order to gain certain flavor characteristics from that barrel. Unaged spirits tend to have a grassy, raw, and maybe more herbal flavor profile, whereas aged spirits are more mellow, sweeter, and generally more nuanced. That's why you're going to see people sipping aged spirits, either straight up or on the rocks, and you're really not going to see that too, too much with unaged spirits, thus more value coming from the spirit when it's aged. And there are basically two 
types of barrels that you can use to age a spirit. You can use a new barrel, whether that's a charred oak barrel or a non-charred barrel, or you can use barrels that at one point contained a different type of spirit. So those would be used barrels. For bourbon in particular, it's legally specified that only new charred American oak barrels may be used to age the spirit. And so once a barrel's used by uh, an American bourbon producer, it's generally sold off to some other type of whiskey producer for repurposing. When it comes to used barrels, the thinking is that you want to impart the flavor characteristics of the previous barrel dweller into the current spirit project. Sherry and port barrels are very often used for this purpose. And if you read the label on many high-end whiskeys, you shouldn't be surprised to find that the barrel type used to either age or finish the whiskey is called out right on the label because that's communicating a certain type of value to someone who's looking for a premium bourbon or rye. Um, as I mentioned, this process is called finishing in most cases, uh, and that's where the spirit is aged normally for a certain amount of years in a regular new or used charred oak barrel, and then it's transferred to the used sherry or port barrel, maybe a cognac barrel, maybe a rum barrel in some circumstances. Whatever it is, it's then transferred to that secondary used barrel for the final portion of the maturation process until it takes on those outside flavor characteristics. So, as you can see, aging is a very complex art, and there are as many regulations about aging and the treatment of spirit barrels as there are about base grains. So before I go deeper on this, I do want to point you toward an episode where I get into some of the real nuances of this with Chad Robinson, who's a real wealth of information about spirit aging and blending. And that was in episode 20, where I talk with Chad about infinity barrels, rum, and brandy. There's obviously a lot more to say about the way that aged spirits are blended and how that affects the age statement on the label, but since this is a Foundations episode, I'm going to keep things simple and give you a quick rundown instead of how barrel aging results in different quality designations in certain spirits. So what do I mean by quality designation? Well, let's say you're a distiller and you make 100 barrels of brandy. You age 50 of those barrels for two years, and then you bottle it and sell it. You age another 25 barrels for a total of four years, and then you bottle and sell that, and then you leave the final 25 barrels in for eight years before finally bottling and selling that. You see how one batch that comes out of the still at the same time can be aged for different amounts of time, and that's going to have a corresponding effect on the flavor and perceived quality of that spirit. Generally speaking, spirits that are aged longer in the barrel tend to be smoother, more complex, and more sought after than spirits that only sat in the barrel for a short period of time. So in industries where it's important to communicate that age, distillers and regulators have agreed on a set of terms that put spirits of different ages into kind of quality buckets to make it easier for consumers to quickly identify them on the label. Let's take brandy as the classic example. VS, which stands for very special, indicates a blend in which the youngest brandy was aged for at least two years. VSOP, very superior old pale, indicates a blend in which the youngest brandy was aged for at least four years, so twice as long as it has to be aged in a VS brandy. XO, 
meaning extra old, is a blend in which the youngest brandy was aged for at least six years. Luckily, you can also use these abbreviations to cross-check the price of the spirit, with VS brandies being the most affordable and XO brandies being the most expensive. And the important thing to remember here is that with aged spirits, you're not just paying for the extra quality you get from extended time in the barrel. You're also paying for a portion of the distiller's utilities during that aging period, the salary of the master blender, and even the cash flow inconvenience that comes from the amount of time the distiller had to wait to get that bottle back into circulation and finally make money off of it. A lot of complex things going into the price there. As I mentioned earlier, agave spirits, tequila and mezcal, also have a shorthand that indicates their age. Blanco, which means white, refers to unaged tequila. Uh, there's generally not Blanco mezcal. Hoven, J-O-V-N, which means young, can indicate either an unaged mezcal or any tequila aged less than two months. Reposado, which means rested, basically means the spirit was aged for two months to one year in a barrel. And añejo, which means old, is any spirit aged between one and three years. Whiskies and rums also make a big deal about how, the, how long they were aged, but there tends to be a lot more variety in aging and blending practices across various parts of the world. So they'll simply call out an age statement on the label using the number of years the spirit was in the barrel. One interesting comparison here is that you can see places where they actually make those geographical distinctions, like in France with cognac and armagnac, and in Mexico with tequila versus mezcal, here is where they really take care to give those quality designations. Whereas, you know, rums can be distilled pretty much anywhere in the world. Same with whiskeys and, and all those other spirits. And so you can see kind of a connection between these quality designations and places where it really matters where the spirit comes from um, to be able to be called cognac, for example, or tequila. One final thing I want to mention here as we wrap up this Barkhart Foundations episode uh, about how to read a spirit label is the way to determine who actually makes the liquor and why that might matter. This is information that's required to be on the label, of course, but it's most often found in small print or on the back of the label somewhere out of the way. So you've actually got to search for it. you gotta got to look for it. This is where you can tell if your spirit is kind of more mass-produced or if it's made by a producer that's doing things on a smaller scale. Why does that matter? If it tastes good and if it makes good cocktails, then who really cares about this? I think the answer is that some people take pleasure in knowing the journey that their spirit goes on from grain to glass. So in this respect, having confidence in the sourcing of the grain or the fruit and the human touch that guides the spirit through its life cycle might be more attractive than knowing that it came out of a distillery that made a million gallons of identical juice sourced from factory farm GMO corn and monitored by computers. Both spirits in these two very different scenarios might make a really good cocktail, but their stories involve very different types of value. So, there's a very simple way to identify to what extent the distiller listed on the front of the bottle is involved with the actual production of the booze. If you find the language distilled and bottled, 
by company X, and that company is the same one that's listed on the front label, that means exactly what it says, distilled and bottled, and it was done by that company. If you've got a label that simply says bottled by, then there's a pretty good indication that what's happening is they're bottling generic spirits produced by a much larger factory producer. Um, another variation of this is aged and bottled by, which means they took somebody else's juice, put it in a barrel, and then bottled it themselves, but they didn't distill it from the grain. Now, there are ways that certain distillers are going to try and sneak one past you. For example, I have a bottle at home, and I'm not going to name names here. I'm not going to tell you what kind of spirit it is, and I'm certainly not going to tell you who produces it. But I know for a fact that this company does not distill this spirit. They filter and they bottle it, but the actual spirit is produced by someone else. On their label, they say produced and bottled by, which I guess indicates that their filtration process is adding enough value to the spirit that they can claim to have produced it, even when that's not really the case. So, kind of a strange note to end on, but I think it's a good cautionary tale that demonstrates how important it is to check out the fine print on your labels before you part so easily with your money. That does it for this Barkhart Foundations episode, but I hope you'll continue the conversation online by sharing your questions and comments about spirits bottles with us via email or social media. We're always here to help out and offer advice as you continue to build your very own modern bar cart. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart, or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.